Hello everybody and welcome to Kickback, your global anti-corruption podcast. Enjoy today's episode of this joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. You can subscribe to the show via Spotify, SoundCloud or iTunes. If you like what we do, leave us a rating at Apple Podcasts. If you want to get in touch with the show, follow us on Facebook or send an email to info at icrnetwork.org. That's info at icrnetwork.org. Welcome to our latest episode of Kickback, the Global Anti-Corruption Podcast. This is Matthew Stevenson, and I'm delighted today to be joined by Bu Rothstein of the Quality of Governance Institute at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden. Bu, welcome, very welcome. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. I think maybe the best way to start out would be for me to ask you to share with our audience how you got interested in the topic of Corruption, but I know your work is not just corruption. Corruption and good governance more generally. It had several uh, starters. One was that I had a PhD student who was studying water management in Africa, which I knew nothing about at that time. And he put me in contact with the, the hydrogeologists and yeah, people from the technical schools here in Sweden who yeah, our engineers basically, and they told me interesting things. They said, this is our situation, around 12 to 14,000 people die every day due to lack of safe water. So we're speaking about the tsunami catastrophe every fortnight. Hmm? And then they say most people think that this is because of lack of natural water. That is not true, it only explains a minimal part of the story. Then they said, we are engineers, so we have been quite successful during the last four, five decades to convince Swedish and other international donor organizations to invest in technical equipment, sewers, water cleaning stations, and so on. But to a large extent, this doesn't work. Why? For two reasons. The procurement process in these countries is so corrupt that the technical installation quickly falls apart. It's of too low quality and or people refuse to pay for the water because they think money goes down in the wrong pocket. So the few honest water managers who are there simply have no money to keep the things going. And I said, so what is interesting for me here? Well, they said, this is basically a public administration, a corruption problem. We have to collaborate. And then I realized, most political scientists, they have politics as their dependent variable, what they want to explain, who wins elections and how parties are formed and how people think about politics and so on. And I decided from that day, no, I will have human well-being as my dependent variable. What can actually the machine do for increasing human well-being? So that was one starting point, maybe the most important. Great. When was this? About how long ago was this when you first got pulled into this topic? Uh, it's 2001, 2002, something like that, yes. So there was, at that point, my impression is there was already a, a growing literature in economics and to some extent in political science on corruption. 
were you already kind of aware of that literature or did you get pulled into it? And what did you think of the state of the literature as you found it in 2001, 2002? I think there was very little in political science at that point. You know, I've asked my colleagues at my age in the Nordic countries or professors in political science, sociology, economics, do you remember going through a seminar or a lecture or anything about corruption when you were a student or during grad school? The answer is no, there is nothing. There were in economics and for political science it's actually a little embarrassing that uh, uh, this started with uh, development economists discovering the importance of institutions uh, at the World Bank and, and many others. Uh, so they were the ones uh, who um, first uh, pointed at this. Uh, then I read this article, Quality of Government. The Institute is very deliberately called Quality of Government Institute, not governance. I stay away from the word term governance. But uh, it was actually they, uh, I think several of them are at Harvard, Schleifer and others, who came to this conclusion that, that uh, this is actually very important. And then I thought, hmm, I, uh, I really like that work and, and I still admire it. But how should I say the quality of government is a too little serious question to be left to only to the economists. So we thought of, yeah, shipping in and, and uh, reaching out with a little helping hand. <laughs> Especially, I think they, they were not very good at the conceptual part of the story. They were very good at the empirical part of the story. So can you say a little bit more about that? So when you started working on this topic, again, corruption is part of it, but quality of government or governance, however different people <laughs> yep. use different terms, more generally, uh, what did you find with respect to the conceptualization of the problem lacking or incomplete? And in what ways do you think you or the people who work with you or have similar views have tried to move uh, the conceptual conversation? Do you say a little bit more about that development? Well, corruption is, of course, notoriously difficult to define, not to say measure and so. However, if you think about it, it's not more difficult than defining democracy or power or opinion and also not more difficult to measure, I think. It's problematic, but most of the things that we are interested in are what you can say untouchables. <laughs> so they are difficult to measure. Um, we were quite unhappy with the standard definition of corruption, abuse of power, public power for private gain or something like that, because abuse was not defined. And uh, so it's basically an empty definition, you can say. Uh, and that had, I think, some problem at that time and still to some extent today. There existed a very relativistic idea about this, that sort of... Uh, good government or good governance and so were a Western idea and, and couldn't work in the rest of the world and that anti-corruption were part of a post-colonial imperialist <laughs> agenda, especially in, in uh, development research circles in this part of the world. So, And this abuse of public power for private gain invited all kinds of relativism because what was abuse in Denmark was something completely different than what would be abuse in Nigeria, for example. So we decided to, using a kind of military metaphor, to uncircle the problem by trying to define what would be the opposite of corruption. What state of affairs do we really want 
public officials or norms to live up to when we can say this is okay. And it wouldn't work just with honesty because then corruption or quality of government wouldn't be different from ordinary criminality. So we think that corruption is, an, is a specific type of uh, unacceptable behavior. So we, we tried to figure this out and we said also many people at that time wanted to include democracy in quality of government. You couldn't have quality of government without democracy. And that was problematic for two reasons. First, we could clearly see there were countries who had reasonably high quality of government there. Paradigmatic cases, Singapore, of course, there weren't democracies. And quite a number of democracies were actually having large problem with this. So, and then if you include democracy in the definition of quality of government, then you cannot explain if democracy or what type of democracy will result in increased quality of government. So we decided to separate this. And to make a long story short, we read Rawls and we read other liberal theorists and, and uh, Brian Barry and others. And of course, Robert Dahl. Dahl's definition of democracy, as is well known, is that it, it's based on one basic norm, political equality. But we thought political equality couldn't really work because in many social services and what the state is doing, we actually don't want equality. We want people to be treated differently. Students have different needs, patients have different needs. So then we came up with this idea of, of, of impartiality in the exercise of, of public power. So let me, I have a, a few questions I want to ask about that. But one question I suppose I, I have is that you set, say you set out with this conceptual project because you were dissatisfied with the traditional definition of corruption. And you started thinking about, well, what's the opposite of corruption? One might think, I think I might think this, impartiality, even if we decide it's a good thing to strive for in government, there can be reasons for failure of impartiality other than corruption. So I guess one question would be, would you reject that and think that any deviation from a norm of impartiality ought to be considered corrupt? If the answer is no, then how do you differentiate those failures of impartiality that we would call corrupt from those that we might call due to uh, or, or ascribed to incompetence or some other factor that doesn't seem corrupt? Um, I mean, one answer would be to point out clientelism, which is maybe not corruption, but it's something that we think is a deviation from what a proper democracy should be. Um, I think it can be then handled by this impartiality idea that you shouldn't give specific favor only to those you think have voted for you. Uh, nepotism could be one thing, for example. We could have settled for the rule of law. And we think the rule of law is very good and we think impartiality is a central piece of rule of law. But especially in our part of the world, the Nordic countries, there are many professions working in the public sector for whom the rule of law is not a central concept. Teachers, nurses, doctors, planners and so on. If you would go into a Swedish preschool and ask the teachers there, do you work according to the rule of law? <laughs> they wouldn't understand what you were talking about. And, but they, they work according to, of course, they work within the law, but their, their basic thing is professional ethics and professional knowledge. And we actually don't want them to treat each and every patient or kid 
the same. We actually want them to tailor what they do to each patient, students, or neighborhood specific needs, right? But we would, of course, be utterly upset if we found out that they gave favors to some kids because their parents had paid them under the table or belonged to some ethnic group and so on. So we wanted to include those professional groups within the definition of quality of government. So let me try to ask my question a little bit more precisely. And it would go something like this. In your view, can there be deviations from impartiality that don't count as corruption? Yes, people can make mistakes, for example. When I try to explain the idea of impartiality to my students, I say, how many of you have been to a sports game? Almost everyone. And then comes my second question. How many of you have supported or cheered for the referees? Of course, no one, right? I say, why? I mean, without reasonably impartial referees, the league will collapse. There will be no game. Uh, but the referee... The parallel to the referees also, they of course make mistakes. They are not perfect. They are human. What we do not accept is if they intentionally would favor uh, one of the teams instead of the other for some reason. Then we think impartiality at the aggregate level leads to more competence for a very simple reason. Impartiality in the recruitment and promotion process will lead to meritocracy and everything else being equal you will get more competent people in the public sector so what i find interesting about this though is we started with a, a challenge uh, that i recognize about how to define corruption and you articulated a frustration that i share that the conventional definition has all sorts of things built into it that we would need to give some kind of content in order for it to be meaningful and then you said the next step in your process was to try to essentially define corruption by focusing on the definition of its opposite but your definition of its opposite is broad enough that not every deviation is corrupt. So aren't we... You've done a lot of important conceptual work, but if I, what I want to do is define corruption, aren't we still kind of stuck in that situation where we need some kind of criteria that we can use to distinguish corrupt from non-corrupt deviations from impartiality? I don't know. I mean, we think of this as a basic norm. Then, of course, we want efficiency and we want neutrality and we want non-discrimination and so, but most of those can be subsumed under impartiality. It's basically a Rawlsian idea that, that um, uh, if you have this type of institutions, they will increase very much the likelihood of fair outcomes. You can also think about impartiality as the opposite to favoritism. And uh, political justice or social justice cannot be defined as equality because we accept many inequalities. What people really don't accept, and this seems to be very universal <laughs> over time and space, is favoritism. So getting back to your point though about how the problem, or as you perceive one of the problems with the traditional definition of corruption is that it invites a certain kind of relativism because it's at least conceptually possible that people might define abuse differently, whether they do or not is an empirical question. If you want to differentiate favoritism, that is a bad deviation from impartiality, from a legitimate recognition that people are different, differently situated, how do you avoid at least the potential for a similar problem? That is, 
You might view this as nepotism, but in a hypothetical other country, they say, hey, you know, family connections is something that in our culture we would legitimately consider as a reasonable basis for differentiating among people. Or to maybe take something that might be a little bit more realistic in terms of what people actually believe, in some countries preferring certain, let's say, ethnic groups, often traditionally disadvantaged ethnic groups, is considered an appropriate way to remedy past wrongs. In other countries or contexts, that might be considered inappropriate favoritism on the basis of a morally irrelevant characteristic. So in your conceptual work with this focus on impartiality versus favoritism, how do you get around what it sounds like was the motivating problem for you to pursue this line of inquiry in the first place? That is to find some standard that won't be at least susceptible to this kind of relativistic judgment. In theory, there could be many exceptions. When I try to go to the empirical world, both contemporary and see how people think about corruption and quality of government, I think that they actually think in this way of impartiality. This comes out from the Afrobarometer. This is also what we found historically when corruption was mentioned in, in Athens, <laughs> classical Athens, and this is what we see actually that people react against. Um, together with an anthropologist, we uh, went through Yale University's gigantic uh, human relation archive and, and looked for uh, terms, you can search it with your computer, um, terms related to cor corruption, bribes and so on. And this is actually what we find, that opposition to corruption seems to exist in every type of society from, yeah, basically Stone Age to now. And, and we couldn't really understand how they could speak about corruption where there were no state. And our way to handle this problem was what we call the public good theory. Every society every clan, tribe, no matter how minimal, have to produce at least some public goods, taking care of orphans, security, some minimal system for justice, and so on. And what people seem to react against is when those who are set to manage those public goods turn them into their private goods. This seems to be universal over time and, and place. Many countries now um, produce ethical codes for the public administration. And we have analyzed 26, most of them from non-Western countries. And the most common norm in these codes is impartiality. It's, and it's, there is no difference between Western and non-Western countries. So let me ask you uh, one more thing about this co the conceptual discussion. And this is maybe a question that our more practically minded listeners might have. So. I'm a professor like you. I, even worse, I'm a law professor, so we love talking about definitions and concepts and so yeah, forth. <laughs> but some of our practically-minded listeners might be wondering, I'm listening to a couple of professors going on about high-level concepts of corruption and impartiality. What, if any, practical difference does it make for the way we think about or approach the problem at a programmatic or policy level uh, in terms of how we conceptualize it? So you said when you, start, when you encountered this literature for the first time in the early 2000s, Though you thought there was some useful empirical uh, material, the thing that frustrated you most was that you felt the conceptualization was not adequate, and you've now done close to two decades of work trying to refine and make more precise and compelling the conceptualization. 
what's the what if any is the payoff of that work for the practical folks in the field who are trying to figure out how to promote an anti an anti-corruption or good government agenda there doesn't need to be one but i'm curious what you think the the practical payoff if any is of the conceptual work that you've done i think we have put up a working argument against relativism which i think has plagued this area for a long time we have shown that it's possible to operationalize this conceptualization we also shown that we can measure it we've also shown that it performs basically as can be expected and then i think it has another advantage we find in our empirical work we've done as you know a lot of empirical work here also uh, i and my colleagues we find a number of what should you say institutional devices that we can empirically show works against corruption we're not writing out recipes but all these have to be tailored to the specific case but we can show for example that universal free and universal education meritocracy gender equality a fair and, and equally administrated system of taxation things like that seems to work and if you think about our findings here you can think about them as signals about impartiality in the social contract way so free and universal schooling is i think sends a very important signal every kid no matter his or her background should have a reasonable fair chance compared to all other kids in society gender equality there are numerous definition of this but for me it's very much an idea about impartiality that uh, shouldn't play any role for promotion or hiring or research allowances or whatever if you're a man or a woman and meritocracy i think is through and through impartiality so i think this is one reason why we sort of pointed at these institutional devices uh, none of this points at abuse of public power it's more positive reforms you can say of course we should have laws and And, and regulations against corruption but i think the most important thing for for handling or minimizing or controlling corruption is a changed social contract based on the norm that the state treats all citizens to use a formulation from Ronald working with equal concern and respect and that is through and through impartiality i think so it turns also the thinking about what can be done against corruption from you know more controls uh, anti-corruption agencies uh, uh, stricter regulations less discretion it turns the thinking to more positive way of what is possible to do so one one specific question about what you just said but then i want to pick up on the last thing you said to maybe ask something a little bit uh, more uh, broad so you mentioned the gender equality point and the context of impartiality so you'll see how this will build on the question i was asking you before one way to address the traditional exclusion or marginalization of women particularly in the political field is through programs that affirmatively promote or in some cases require greater female participation so in india for example i believe a provision of the constitution sets aside a certain percentage of the village leadership positions for women other countries have done similar sorts of things about the party list has to alternate men and women and, and so forth Another approach to gender equality is more along the lines of formal neutrality that is not discriminating against 
the gender, in this case women, that's been traditionally excluded, but not creating any kind of special preference. So if one thinks about the struggle for good government and against corruption, though of course it's, it's broader, as you do in the context of anti-favoritism, pro-impartiality, combined with the empirical research that you and your colleagues have done about the impact of gender equality manifested in different ways, does it speak at all to that debate about which of these approaches would be... Obviously, there are debates about which would be better on other dimensions, which would be more fair, which would be more just, but from the perspective of promoting good government, non-corrupt government more broadly, uh, is it more important for the government to adopt a stance of formal neutrality and gender equality, or more important for the government to take affirmative steps to promote uh, the inclusion of, again, it's almost always been women of the gender that's been traditionally excluded from political power? Now, our definition is quite minimalistic. It is about impartiality in the exercise of public power, not in the access or creation of policies. So, Nobody would enter politics based on impartiality. You want more money for poor people, or you want preferential treatment for women, or protection of the environment. And so politics is not a game about impartiality. Politics is through and through partisan. So we wouldn't have a problem with policy enacted in a democratic way, saying there should be preferential treatment of women. The impartiality thing comes in when this is going to be implemented. So we had cases here in Sweden where there were certain uh, shares, uh, professorships set aside, it was some 20 years ago, for only women. And then, of course, different women applied, and they all wanted that uh, selection process then should be completely impartial. <laughs> it should be merits. So we wouldn't have a problem with that, actually. Uh, it's it's a, a, This is very much focused on the, yeah, the exercise, the, the implementation side of, of politics is, is a partisan game. And we think there is a difference between the quality of government and the quality of democracy. So a democracy that produces preferential treatment is not a problem for our definition of, of, of what is good government. So I want to pick up on something else you said a moment ago, which is you, you drew a contrast, although certainly you didn't frame these things as mutually exclusive, but you drew a contrast between the kinds of measures that you want to emphasize, things like universal uh, basic education, propagation of gender equality norms, and so forth, uh, on the one hand, and on the other hand, what you might think of as the more traditional enforcement-oriented anti-corruption pro-integrity mechanisms laws against corruption that are enforced, maybe audits, though not technically criminal, would fall in here too, codes of ethics and so forth. Um, can you say a little bit more about how these different pieces fit together? So on the enforcement side of the equation, what, if anything, your work suggests about the right way to go about designing a system of accountability, monitoring, oversight, punishment, etc., that would promote quality of government and get corruption under control? The first problem with the control punishment thing is, of course, it points to a kind of endless uh, regression. Because then you have to have a system where those who are going to monitor and implement cannot be bought, cannot be corrupted. And in a systemically corrupt setting, that is quite unlikely. Of course, we need laws and so against. But if you look at the Nordic countries, uh, which uh, are 
at least according to most standard measures, uh, have quite low corruption. We never had anti-corruption agencies. The laws were not far from perfect. <laughs> there were not many criminal cases about corruption. Uh, we got an anti-corruption agency when uh, the European Union uh, forced uh, new countries, Romania and Bulgaria, to set up. And then they said, but the Nordic countries don't have one. <laughs> but also the research about this strategy has not uh, shown great results, I can say. There seems to be hardly any effect, for example, of setting up a special anti-corruption agency. Then you have the case of Italy. Uh, as you know, we've done a lot of empirical survey-based research on Italy uh, or on in Europe, sampling on regions. And, and uh, the nice thing with sampling of regions is that you can see if there is regional variation. And in a third of the European countries, there is significant regional variation. In Italy, it's enormous. The regions in mid and southern Italy, as you know, are bad, maybe not on a Nigerian, but well on Albanian level. But the regions in the north are almost clean as Denmark. Now, this is a country who have had the same formal laws, regulations, police, courts for 150 years. The result is not impressive on the ground. So we think that in order to sort of do something more fundamentally against corruption, the positive things that the citizens actually see that if the system doesn't work, our children will not get schooling, they will, we will not be protected by the police, we will not get health care and so on. If they don't have a stake in the society, they will not care about corruption. So people will say, hmm, yeah, what the political elite is doing, stealing from natural resources or so, it's bad, but it's, uh, it's, it doesn't affect me. I had nothing to do with them. So that is why I think this uh, more social contract approach, again, we're not writing out recipes. Uh, you have to think that every country have to take our result and say what can be applied specifically to our case here. From historical studies, uh, we think that has a, more, a better chance of succeeding in doing something against corruption. So I imagine when you take this message out to the world, especially the people in the policy or advocacy communities, they might have the following reaction. And maybe they don't, and if they don't, you know, let me know that as well. But I imagine they might say something like, well, we take the point and we agree that things like a universal public education would be great and would do a lot in the long term to deal with corruption, uh, changing the perception of the social contract and so forth. These would be great, but these are things that are going to take generations to have any effect. And even when they do have an effect, it's going to take some very clever researchers using some very clever econometric techniques to disentangle that effect from all the other stuff that's going on. So um, are you telling us, my imaginary practically minded people might say, that we just have to put all our efforts into this sort of stuff and, and, and trust that it will work? Is there anything that we can do that's likely to have a tangible, demonstrable short-term effect or are basically is basically what you're telling us that short-term measures are unlikely to have any discernible meaningful effect. We just have to, as the old cliche goes, plant the tree now and hope that our grandchildren will be able to enjoy its fruit and shade. Well, democracy took a long time to establish, <laughs> according to a new book by my friend and colleague Sherry Berman. Uh, it went up and down, so 
anyone who thinks that there can be quick fixes here have, I think, uh, something to prove. I mean, we have been, and many international organizations have been launching program after program after pro program with this quick fix thing, uh, thinking basically that uh, if you just change the incentives, things would go well. Well, the results on the ground are not impressive, I would say. so. And then, yeah, what should you say? Um, we cannot say that we can cure this in a short while. If I understand correctly, the, the economists don't know how to create an economy with low employment and low inflation and without crisis yet, right? They have been going on for a hundred years. Uh, the criminologists have really not solved the problem. We're not the only ones who cannot come up with the quick fix. Uh, yes, the medical research have done fantastic things when it comes to cancer, but they have actually not broken the, the major question here how to or come up with a vaccine or something. So this is something you have to live with as a researcher. Now, in my part of the world, to take one example, uh, Sweden, even if it's a small country, has a quite large uh, international aid and development budget. 70% of the money, or maybe more, goes to supporting democracy, civil society organizations, elections, and so on. And I will be the last one to argue against democracy. But if you look at it empirically, that is not where the action is. You know, it's strengthening uh, the land register, improving the taxation system, education, and so on. And when I speak with the, the, the politicians here, they say, and we have written a policy report to them, uh, so uh, 150 pages, quite uh, summarizing our empirical and theoretical results. They say, yeah, you're right. The problem is this. In this country, it's very easy to get money for democratization aid, money for public administration. <laughs> now it's not so sexy, I cite them. So the, there you have a problem, of course, that uh, that politicians, they, yeah, everyone is, of course, and especially in this country, democracy is the, the religion. And, but we know uh, that in many countries, the most corrupt countries are actually the newly democratized ones. And there seems to be a number of things that newly elected governments in weak states cannot temptations that they cannot stand against. One is to fill the public sector with their political cronies. Take South Africa or now Mexico, for example. If there is a change of government now in Mexico, the president say he will fire 200,000 civil servants. That, of course, lower the competence enormously. They can also seem not to be able to withstand to fill their party coffers for campaigns with public money. They have a hard time handling nepotism, for example. So. While I am, of course, very much in favor of democratization, if improved human well-being is what you are looking for, that is not where the action is. So I suppose a skeptic might push back against you in, in the following respect. So, and I, by the way, I'm not sure if I would fall into the skeptical category, but just let's play. Um, you, you talked a moment ago about how the kinds of reforms that you would favor are the kinds of things that signal a modification of the social contract, but that might take quite a long time to come to fruition. So a defender of democracy might say, hey, you know, it's going to take some time. 
Uh, if you look at the United States in the late 19th or early 20th century, we also had the spoil system where civil servants would come and go based on who won the election. There was also a lot of nepotism. The system was also highly imperfect. But if you're telling us to adopt a longer-term strategy, you know, doesn't democracy look kind of good? Isn't there something a little bit unfair about calling for long-term solutions when it comes to promoting quality of government in other ways, but highlighting the failure of democracy to produce results within one generation that sets up kind of an unfair head-to-head -head comparison? Yeah, you can, you can say that, but I think that the data shows quite clearly that democratization without a reasonably qualified, competent uh, state uh, will not deliver human well-being. And uh, take China and, and, and India. We have to handle and face the fact that autocratic communist China outperforms liberal democratic India on every conceivable measure of human well-being, unfortunately. Take South Africa. Many of the measures of human well-being are actually worse now than 1994. Or yeah, I made a comparison between Jamaica and Singapore, both equally small, both former British British colonies, uh, uh, and were dirt poor when they liberated themselves from British colonial rule in, in in the early 1960s. Now, at that time, they were equally poor. Now I think Singapore has 28 times the GDP as Jamaica and actually beat the Nordic countries when it comes to infant mortality. The only little problem is that during this whole period, according to my colleagues who studied democracy, Jamaica has been a democracy, Singapore not. So mm -hmm. how should I say? This is normatively difficult to handle. I will never argue against democracy. I love democracy. I wouldn't like to live in Singapore. But if human well-being is important, Democracy without also trying to improve the, the quality of government will not deliver human well-being, if that is what you're after. If you're just after democracy, formally, yes, they will have elections, fine, but will actually the babies have survive and will the children have clean water? Probably not. So there's so much more we could say about this, but I want to maybe shift gears since we only have a little bit of time remaining and ask you maybe a few other broader questions. And, and what is this? I'm curious. So you got into this field close to two decades ago, and you've been working on it and doing a lot of very important work, both yourself and also with your collaborators here at the Quality of, of uh, Government Institute. Have your views on any key issues shifted substantially in that time? Are there things that, let's say, you believed 15 years ago about corruption or quality of government that you no longer believe? And, and if so, how has your thinking changed and why? I think this is an area full of surprises. <laughs> I was a true believer in the principal agent theory, for example. I'm no longer, as you know, that you should sort of... The problem was that uh, problem of fixing the incentives. Uh, I thought... I, I came also from research on, on social trust, social capital. And I was quite convinced that in a big state like the Nordic state, social trust and, and that would sort of, uh, how should you say, um, take all the space and there would be little room for social capital and social trust. It's quite the opposite. I was also convinced that um, this would be hopeless to measure. I think it's not. <laughs> I mean, if you look at the measure, we will never have perfect measures, but we now have eight or nine different indexes of rule of law, government effectiveness, corruption, our measure, and they correlate on a 0 0.8, 0 0.9 level. I was also surprised that uh, 
opinions against corruption are so strong in highly corrupt countries that people participate usually because they have no other choice to get health care or education for their kids and so but they really don't like it even in, in uh, quite hopelessly corrupt settings um, yeah I, the list can go on I think this has been an area full of surprises yeah. this happiness research that people at, seems to get unhappy for two and a half reasons one is if they perceive that they are ill seems reasonable the other seems to be that if they live under discriminatory, corrupt, dysfunctional government institutions. You do get happier with more money, but actually it fades away about, yeah, you say to my students about the money we have when I was a teenager, <laughs> then it doesn't, at the, as it can be measured, don't, don't give you anymore. And, and, and I think this happiness or satisfaction with life thing has to do with if you live under corrupt institutions, you seem to lose, think that you, you, the cards are stacked against you. Whatever you do, it doesn't matter. You cannot improve your situation because the institutions are against you. Helliwell, one of the foremost uh, researchers in this area, and happiness research, he, he writes this word happiness reports and so They show a very interesting thing in their recent report, namely countries that improve their quality of government, there are not many, get the quite quick and strong increase in satisfaction with life. And they say this is this effect is much stronger than effect for improved economics. So I think that <laughs> you say it will take a very long time, but at least when it comes to satisfaction with life, it seems to go quite fast. I think I was referring to the previous link in the chain. So there's okay. policy to improvement in quality of government to happiness. Yeah. So I was asking about the first link in the chain. Okay. How long does it take oh. for the policies that you adopt to improve quality of government? Although I'm totally uh, open to the what idea. What did it take for Sweden? At least 40, 50 years. Um, what did it take for the UK? Even more, even longer. These are very much issues about mentality. So, for example, if you think having a having a position as a civil servant means that you can extract rents, that you can collect five or six positions and then have other people doing the actual work. If you can recruit people based on your their, their heritage and neighbors and so on. To the more Weberian view that it's a job, you're supposed to do it, you're supposed to be there, you're supposed to follow the rules and regulation. That's a, that's a very shift in mentality. The interesting thing from this part of the world is that the professors at that time in public law and so they see this change. They write in the 1880s that the whole idea of having a position in the public administration have changed, they write. So it's, it's a mental shift in a way that we are looking for. What does it mean to have a position? I mean, in most countries still in the world, you get the position in the public sector because you belong to the right party or have the right connections or you're a man. And so the very idea that you should get it because of your actual competence for the position is quite revolutionary still in most countries. Terrific. There's, there's so much else that I that I would love to ask you about, uh, but I think we're reaching the end of our time. 
so and I, I think maybe that's a nice note on which to end our conversation. So thank you again for joining me on today's episode of Kickback, the Global Anti-Corruption Podcast. Uh, our guest again has been Boo Rothstein of the Quality of Government Institute, not the Quality of Governance Institute, very different, at the University of Gothenburg. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Matt, and also thank you for your wonderful anti-corruption blog. It's a huge asset in this business. I appreciate it. It's great to know that you're reading it. It's one of the reasons we keep uh, putting it together. Thank you so much. Uh, Bye, everybody.